Welcome to the Commercial Kitchen Chronicles, the podcast dedicated to the commercial food equipment repair industry. My name is Pat Finley. I'm a lead master certified technician at General Parts Group. My goal is to shine a light on what I believe to be one of the most interesting and rewarding industries that field service technicians can work in. I love the work I do, and I'm glad you're here listening to this podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by Jason Latimer and Rich Ortega as we talk refrigeration. Welcome back to another episode of the Commercial Kitchen Chronicles. We've got Rich, El Chico of Cabra, and Jason Latimer on. Um, but first, let's get down to business. So you guys know I do RLS press, man, and that stuff's great. So RLS press fittings for HVACR offer unparalleled convenience. You just press and you're done. No flames, no mess, and absolutely no hassle. Whether it's commercial spaces, residential installations, or complex industrial setups, RLS press fittings deliver the strength and precision you need all in one compact design. Upgrade your connections, elevate your projects, all with RLS press fittings. Now that's out of the way. What's going on, gentlemen? What's going on? What's going on? What's up, y'all? Uh, been a long day. Uh, been off work the last couple of days. I'm off tomorrow. Um, just get some stuff Lucky. in Yeah. <laughs> you were last week. I don't want to hear you. Yeah. Taking some so, PTO? Yeah. Well, I was supposed to go to Spessa, and then um, I had a, a contractor say get my room finished upstairs in my office. So that kind of took a little bit of precedence to make sure I'm home, get that taken care of. So. I'm ready to get moved into my office, studio, and get all my banners up, my lights up, and all kinds of stuff. So it took a little more precedent over going to uh, the regional meeting, but I'm sad I missed it. Seen some pretty cool episodes, some pretty good, pretty cool uh, footage and pictures and stuff. But it's always a good time. But hey, there's always the next one, right? Oh yeah. So uh, <laughs> every time I see the name, I'll start laughing. <laughs> so Rich, you do anything fun today? Uh, cleaning up after some half-ass tech that I work with, um, and it, it, it goes with our topic today of refrigeration. Part of it was him uh, not changing the dryers after changing compressors, and then has the nerve when the unit's still not working to quote a uh, new cap tube replacement, and the cap tube wasn't even plugged up. It was the dryer, so did about $2,000 worth of free work today, give or take. Yeah, it happens, unfortunately. Um I don't know why guys think they can change a compressor and not change a dryer. I mean, hell, I don't. I mean, even if the system has a leak and it's never went negative, you still need to change that dryer. So, exactly. Jason, what about you? Oh, it wasn't a crazy day. Just office work today. Didn't have to go out. It rained all day, so it, you know I didn't have to do any go on a roof or anything like that. So, so wasn't complaining. I got to get caught up on some emails and some contract work and. It's a pretty smooth day. Smooth nice. day. My my team's doing their thing. They had all ice machines, so for the most part, um, they worked on the ice machines and their reach-ins, and then it cleared up later in the afternoon. They were able to go up and change filters and belts and clear drain lines and get back inside and go about their day. And then hopefully tomorrow, probably be about the same thing this weather. So yeah, it, it flat poured here bad. Um, I, it was terrible. We got. It was decent this morning, got pretty windy, and then all of a sudden it got dark fast, and there's just buckets of rain coming down. <clears throat> I mean, we had beautiful weather up here, so just throw that out there. Yeah, yeah thanks. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that what somebody told me uh, recently that the farmer's almanac is predicting that this is going to be the coldest winter. 
coming up here. I'm not sure what that's about. I know it's hot as can be. So if it's if there's going to be a flip side to it and it's going to be as cold as to be, I'm I'm looking forward to that. I feel like I hear that every year though. Yeah, heard there's going to be a lot of hurricanes this year because of what the uh, El Nino or El Nina. The water at the beach here is 90 degrees. It's it's like getting in a hot tub practically. It's not even refreshing. It's bath water at that point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you know you mentioned cold. Um, I don't know if you have headmasters down there. You know we're talking about refrigeration today. And uh, come mid to late September, sometimes October, I start getting calls. You know, when it gets cooler at night and it's warmer during the day, of course, you know, and say at schools or a restaurant, they come in first thing in the morning and everything's running warm. The cooler's running warm, the freezer's running warm. Sun comes out, it warms up a little bit outside, you know, pressure's built up a little bit better, and all of a sudden it's working fine. You get there in the afternoon. Um, you know, I'm just going to bring this up because, you know, that's what we're talking about, but. Uh, a little tip I'll tell guys when it first gets cold of the year, um, check those temperature logs. If you have a repeat issue of it being warm in the mornings, so you're boxing, you know, by afternoon, it gets back to normal. Check those charges because headmasters start bypassing when it gets a little cold. You may be low on charge. Yeah, I think yeah, the best I'm, thing I'm, they can do is pull the charge and weigh it back in and see what they're missing because these guys like to add, you know, when it's cold out, they like to add that charge and then come summertime, we have all these high head pressures, and everyone's blaming the the, the dirty coil. But you know, there's a lot more going on there. Yeah, yeah so I'm not I'm not really a fan of headmasters, but honestly, I'm not the greatest with them. And where we live, it doesn't get cold enough where you actually need them, but it does get to where they can act up if the charge isn't done properly. Yeah, I just know, like I had a school, and um, they put new equipment in over summer, and I showed up like. It was like October 3rd or 4th, and I like walked by. I'm like, I want to see something. I walked by the condensing unit because they moved it on the ground from out inside. And uh, I look over the side glass, and it's flash full, flash full, flash full. And the main was like, what are you doing? I was like, I was like, call those guys back out, tell them to put the right charge in here. I said, you're running a little low. And he's like, how do you know that? And I had to explain it to him. And the guy supposedly done HVAC for years. So, <laughs> But there was no leaks. They came out and checked it. There was no leaks. It just, you know. They charged it in July instead of, you know, October. Mm -hmm. so. so what's your method when it comes to a headmaster? What I've been doing the past couple of years, because um, one of our, our senior techs told me this is how he always does it, is so if he's charging it in the summertime, he'll charge, um, you know, until you got a clear sight glass, and then he'll usually add like two pounds to it. And he says that usually ends up being right about spot on if he doesn't know what to actually put in the system, what it holds? Um, I always charge the full sight glass, and then I try to add 10%. And then what I do is I try to pump down my receiver and try to measure how full that receiver is because you don't want to go above 80% of that receiver. Um, mm -hmm. So I try to do it that way. Now, you can actually – there's formulas to do it, uh, and it gets kind of kind of crazy. And, you know, you got count tubes and bins and all kinds of stuff, measure pipe size. Um but generally, I'd like to go full sight glass, look at my temperature, and then add ten percent in, and I'll I'll dive off that receiver and I'll heat it up like a, a heat gun or a torch slightly, and then you can feel the, the fullness level. If you watch Chris Stevens, he actually uses a thermal imaging camera, and um, he'll heat it up, and you can actually see it real well. The thermal imaging camera it shows it really well, like where that line is, because that refrigerant will stay cold, and above that refrigerant will be hot, and you can see it plain as day with thermal imaging camera if you just put a little heat to it. Now you don't okay. want to go 
see him leave your torch on there. You just want to wave it across there a couple times to generate some heat on that metal, and it it shows up plain as day. Okay, cool. So, but you can always you can always look up or call the manufacturer of your outdoor equipment, and generally they'll tell you you know the max charge you can hold for whatever refrigerant you're using or it's designed for. Um, yeah, that's my so go-to. What yeah. I was taught, and it, it seems to work most of the time, is um, and y'all, y'all tell me if I'm wrong in any way, but um. If you know the receiver capacity, it's usually in liters, but I believe you can do whatever the liters are times 2.2. That translates to pounds, and then 80% of that um, is what you want to charge to. It seems to work. The same guy that, that told me to charge to a full sight glass and then add two pounds, he was like, if you can find the receiver capacity, that's the easiest way to do it. I don't know if y'all know any different from that. Yep. Uh, I've, I've, I never heard that, so that's a good one. I'll have to check that out. So, Nasty says he likes he tends to pump it down and then torch it. Yep, pump it down and put a little heat to it, and you can feel it. Um, nice, but yeah, I prefer just the generally. If I'm putting in a new system, I'll either email in to tech support or I'll call somebody like, Hey, I got this receiver, this refrigerant, this is where I'm at. You know, what's the maximum charge, and then go from there. But that's I always, the one thing I've never thought of. <laughs> Yeah, and I always, you know, even if they say, oh, you know, that's a 12 pound receiver, you can put 10 pounds in it. I still, I'll still charge the full side glass and it can go from there. All right. Hmm. So you guys done a lot of installs when refrigeration side? Uh, hit or miss. Just depends on the customer. Um, I've done a lot more in the past than I've done here lately, unfortunately. Um, I did. Build a box a couple of years ago, walk-in freezer cooler combo, uh, two condensers, you know, two evaporation systems. But it's just hit or miss, man. It's kind of weird. Yeah, yeah I do seems- a good amount. Uh, me and and this the same guy I've been talking about. We do most of the equipment changeouts. No, I'm lying. We do just about all of the equipment changeouts for our branch over here. And I mean, this year not as many as last year. Last year it's like we did a, a ton of them. I mean, we had days where we did two, three changeouts. You know day day and then day like we did one place in two days we did thirty five thousand dollars worth of equipment change outs and whatnot on first we did the cooler then we did the freezer actually we had a, two or three incidents like that so yeah we do a good amount of them over here this year like i said slowed down a little bit but always on the same site hmm? always on the same site when you have two or three are you um no it, it, it could be either or i mean we've had several where it was like one day we did the freezer the next day we did the cooler Mm-hmm. But yeah, sometimes it's like, okay, hey, Monday we're gonna be at this location doing a change out. Wednesday at this location, Thursday at the, at the next location. Gotcha. Yeah, so you know, I do a, a ton of reaching stuff, um, and not really change outs, but you know, most of our stuff's inside and reaching. You know, we get the walk-ins too, but generally, it seems like most of our issues where I'm at is the reach-ins. You know, they're in the kitchen, they're soaking up grease, they're you know, doors being left open, gaskets are hanging off them, that kind of stuff is the biggest issue we see uh, in my area. It's just abuse in the kitchen pretty much. Um, luckily, you know, it, it, it seems like it comes and goes in spurts. Um, but you, you got to stay on top of those gaskets. That's that's my biggest issue is, you know, freeze up due to airflow. So make sure you stay on top of those gaskets. Make sure they're good. Make sure they're not smashed completely. Make sure they're in the track. Make sure they're not hanging out, that kind of stuff. So reliable. We're gonna do some walk-in boxes soon. Are you building them or just uh, putting in new condenser and evaporator? Um, have you guys ever built a walk-in? I've I have. We we did um 
we did a nightmare one at a college uh last year i think it was or early this year um it was it was i forget what size it was it was it was wide and it had glass doors and glass windows on one end it, it was real nice but what made it a nightmare was the uh gc that was remodeling the building they never leveled the floor and yeah. apparently at some point in the whole construction the college told them they could not level the floor where the where the box was supposed to go and on top of that when i went into the site survey you know it was just framed out so i asked this gc i'm like where's it going he's like here and he's like you'll have three feet on this side three feet on that side to play with it square it up by the time he got done we had two inches on each side to mess with oh, the wow. box and get it get it square but it took us we spent honestly probably almost a full day just finding wood on the job site and making shims just to be able to level the box itself before we could put it all together. How do you get those shims to stay there over time with, because of the temperature, the swelling of the wood? I mean, could you explain that to me? Cause I, I've never done a build a box before. Um, I mean, that was my first time doing it, but being that they went underneath the, the insulated floor, I don't know that, that it'll be too much of an issue. I mean, if it does. That's so it's not I, visible I from, so it's underneath. No. It's not visible. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. It's, so it's, it's under the weight of the box. Floor. Exactly. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And then we that cut them super long, so they're going from exactly wherever the floor is not level to the end of the box. All these shims were three, four or more feet in, in length. Oh, wow. Yeah. We were basically taking, like, two-by-fours and then shaving them down to make shims out of them. Oh, wow. Why, so, why wouldn't they let you make uh, make appropriate adjustments? I just didn't want anything messed with like that the structure yeah, of the building I, I, I don't know i don't know if it was like a historic building or what but literally um and it was confirmed by the um maintenance the facility staff of the college they were like yeah you know we ended up for whatever reason not allowing the, the floor to be leveled i'm like okay well y'all just screwed this whole thing up but we'll make it work yeah. some places are funny like that they, they'll like well we have to have engineered re-engineered and drawings and approvals you know it's just like we just need a change some levels here and some surfaces yeah. but they probably didn't want to grind them inside the building or something by the time they get to that point of the project or something i imagine um yeah yeah we never got the details we were just like oh we'll make it work y'all are gonna pay for it but we'll make it work <laughs> <laughs> so bobby says he's used quarter inch dirt rock that's a good good idea i never thought about that so slide some dirt rock underneath the you know panels yeah it sounds like that's you're a quarter inch out if you're having three or four foot long gems <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, we were stacking several shims and everything. It, it was it was insane. I wish I had pictures to to show y'all. It was crazy. So as far as inside the building, you know, I've done a lot of chicken places. I've you know I've worked in the Lord's Chicken as we call it around here for years and years and years. Um, they've actually started going away from, them, but they had those Brandel breading tables, man, and they had a five year warranty on those bad boys. Mm -hmm. And dude. You've been in there. They're flinging that flour, that coating, or that coater around. I've had coils that were like six months old that I had to literally like take nitrogen at like 150 psi. You spray it down with water. You put a towel on the backside. You pull the fan off. The towels over the backside and just blow it through. And it comes out like clay. Yeah. So the, mean, the Chick Fil A's over here, we actually put filters on all the condensers. So oh, the condensers don't they don't get that that bad now. So I've noticed here recently at some of my stores, they're putting in these little Duke ice boxes. Mm -hmm. This guy got a little touch screen on there and just measures temperature and tells them, hey, you know, you're getting warm. But this is like a Duke unit. It's pretty sweet. 
Yeah, I've seen a couple of those. I haven't worked on them, but they look cool. You got a hand crank. You can raise it lower to whoever's highest working, you know, doing the breading and stuff. And it's it's pretty neat. Um, I'm surprised it got away with those, you know, got away from the Rando. Like I said, it's a five-year warranty. And most of the time, you know, they beat the crap out of it for five years. And then all of a sudden, they just get a brand new one. So I was kind of surprised when I walked in and seen that first uh, Duke thing in there. I don't know about overall, but here I feel like those Randell tables had a lot of issues, a whole bunch of stuff. We were constantly servicing them for for different things. That's probably why they got they got rid of them. Leaks all the time, man. Mm-hmm. Them up. I mean, just you know, other manufacturers have the same issues. It's just it just seems like the Randell always had a leak, um, and it was always you know just at that place, dude. Clog coils, man. You know, pizza places. You know, reliable. Adrian said pizza places are the same way, and it's crazy anywhere that has flour. It's just a recipe for disaster. So it looks like Bobby wanted to know what you are using for filter media. So what do you use? <laughs> I just literally messaged back on there. I've got no idea. RPM crew does all of that. So I'm, uh, I'm not sure exactly what they're using. You haven't seen that blue horsehair stuff or that. So we have two different ones we use. We use like some blue. It's like it's like an inch and a half thick, but it's like pretty much nothing. You can squeeze it down to nothing. Mm-hmm. It looks kind of like the blue, like one inch cheap furnace filters, you know. And yeah. then we use some like gray spongy material. Um, but nothing's really going to catch that flower. I mean, it does a little bit better job, but it still gets pretty beat up. Yeah. So, yeah. Lee brings up a good point. Those breading tables, man, they rip those lids off there. That big, long hinge. Like that six-foot-long hinge you got to put on there and spring-loaded. If you had to do one of those. At the Chick-fil-A? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, w- that was one where... Um... One of the times I had to work on the lids, it's like the, the hinges broke. One of the bolts broke, and it stripped out, um, the, you know, the hole stripped out where the bolt went and all that good stuff. So I rethreaded it. But it was funny because it was my first time seeing one. So I had no idea how to open that lid. And the ticket just said something like the, the bracket moves when the lid opens. So that was one where I tell you all that I'm like, Yo, go ahead and show me where you're having the issue. <laughs> I had no idea how to open it. I said, dude, show me what's going on with it. And then I watched the guy open it. I'm like, all right, cool. I got you. <laughs> nice. So Brian asked, "What are our thoughts on Hustle Reach-ins? I don't have any Hustle Reach-ins. Um, I had a set of four eight-foot-long Hustman open-air cases, and we ripped them out after three years because they installed the condenser units on top, and then they finished the ceiling around them. So you had like um, a twelve-inch opening to get in there to service them, and they were all sealed up. So it just kept eating compressors left and right. That's when I was talking about that one time where I measured like a discharge temperature of like." 300 degrees after the compressor. So you know that compressor just smoked. And I, one section will run all right, right, but as soon as you get further down the line and more and more airflow, it just, they just die, dude. I literally changed the compressor and like three weeks later, it, it was gone again. I'm like, guys, we can't keep doing this. I mean, I don't know how much money you're paying us, but it's not worth it, man. And they yeah. brought in engineers. They brought in the building engineers, the college engineers, and everybody I'm like, oh, that should work. I'm like, no, it's never going to work. I had like, 10 different uh, temperature sensors up there and I was like data logging everything. I'm like, look, this is this is ridiculous. This thing can't run. You pull the covers off and it runs, but as soon as you put these decorative panels back up, skyrocket, kick high pressure switches, it kick out those uh, little thermal overload, you know, sensors they put on the discharge lines and stuff. And then I got there one time and one of the guys had moved the thermal overload switch. He just like took it off so it was just hanging in the air. I'm like, what's the point, dude? Like <laughs> you wonder why you can't keep a compressor in this thing. Right. I want to say I've worked on a handful of Hussman reach-ins, but old ones. And those were, were pretty solid looking. I don't 
I mean, probably rare that I ever had a major issue, but those were the ones with like the old Coplamedic compressors and pretty much built like tanks. You could probably set off dynamite inside of them and they probably wouldn't even dent. But I haven't worked on anything newer, so I couldn't I couldn't tell you. Everybody's digging the name change. It's <laughs> uh, great. So you know, in our world, <laughs> that was derailed. It's derailed bad. Oh uh, man! In the kitchen, um, these companies they got to pee in their stuff, man. Uh, that there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. In the kitchen. Um, whether it be flour, breading, grease, lint, you name it, it's in the kitchen. You got they have to clean these. Um, whether they do it themselves or they have an agreement, but if you do not clean your equipment, it's gonna die. Um, I don't know what else to tell you. Inside joke on the name. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Condenser coils keeping each other warm. Yeah, they were uh so those husbands, they were weird because the discharge they were Four units. It's actually two condensing units per unit, and the, um, the way they were designed was they discharge air into each other from the back, so they're the coils faced out away from each other. And um, but the problem wasn't there was there was eight compressors up there, and it just it just blew that air around, dude. They they tried putting in return air air ducts, but then they shut off the AC, so it quit sucking the air out. It just it didn't make any sense whatsoever. Yeah. So, Pat, I want to hear you talk about something. Um, it's something that I do, but I feel like you probably can give a better explanation on it than, than me. But I know you do a lot of um, non-invasive uh, charge testing, you know, testing the charge without without hooking up gauges, which for anybody out there who's not, you know, very familiar with refrigeration or even if you if you are, my thing is um, – Gauges should be your last resort. You can get a good idea of what's going on inside the system without connecting your gauges. And you don't want to connect your gauges uh, unless you have to, because every time you you connect your gauges, you are losing some charge, especially if you've got the traditional manifold with the with the long hoses like that. So learning how to test the charge without hooking up your gauges is is pretty critical, in my opinion. So go ahead, Pat. You you uh explain that for us if you can so what i do on the non-invasive stuff so generally it's anything critical charge you know nowadays r290 r600 um you know it used to be r134 there's still some r404 stuff anything they don't want you putting gauges on will won't have access fittings so say if you walk up to a cooler and it's running warm and you start your diagnosis process how i like to do it is i like to i measure box temperature inside i measure you know ambient temperature outside i measure Temperature exiting the uh, condenser fan motor. I, I, I get crazy with measuring. I measure discharge temperature six inches from the compressor and out. Um, I measure suction pressure, suction temperature. Either if I can't get it at the coil, um, I get it coming back out the wall, and then I measure liquid line temperature. And yet, you get to know your refrigerator type, and you can kind of get in the ballpark and see what it's doing. Once you get all those, and you think you may have a leak or whatnot, um, I check the amp compressor. So if you have a leak, you're not going to be pumping as hard. So your amp draw is going to be low. And generally, that's enough information to figure out, hey, I have an issue here, you know, refrigerant charge. And then you can go ahead and it's warranty. I always call the manufacturer and ask, you know, hey, this is what I found. This is what I got as far as discharge, suction, liquid temperature, you know, ambient temperatures, that kind of stuff. And give them all the information. Most of them, yeah, go ahead. You got a leak. Go ahead and tap it. Put some gas in to find the leak. Um, outside of warranty, you know, you don't have to ask for permission. I uh, just go ahead and put taps on and go from there. But Generally, like I said, measure about every temperature you can think of to measure. 
and uh, check an amtral. If you get low amtral, so what do you what do you look for temperature wise? Because because I do it kind of old school. What are you looking for temperature wise when you check uh, like the discharge and, and all that stuff? You'll have a warm suction. You'll have a hot hot discharge, and then liquid will will probably be pretty close to suction. It really does not much change in it, and maybe a little cooler. But uh, generally, that's what I look for. So you're not looking for any specific uh, uh, temperatures based on the the you know design temp or anything like that. It's just based on um, refrigerant, so I'd have to look at the scale. I, I can't remember pressure temperature pressure chart off the top of my head, but you know, generally your suction will be close to ambient, um, and your liquid will be close to ambient too. Your discharge may be a little higher; could be high. It just depends on you know what's going on in the system, how low it is. Uh, so it could be completely flat, and then go from there. Yeah. See, I, I like. I do it a little old school, and I, I didn't know if you knew anything about temperatures because I had somebody ask me, well, what temperature do you look for? And I'm like, look, this is how I do it. It's basically what Pat just described, but, you know, my discharge line should be scalding hot. Yep. My The entrance to my condenser should be just about scalding hot, and it should gradually work its way down to ambient temperature, more or less, if I'm touching my way down the elbows, down to the liquid line, and, you know, your suction line, should be pretty cold. <laughs> I mean, that, that's how I do it. That's why I say I do it old school. And, you know, anybody watching could feel free to pick that apart, but it, it doesn't fail me. And, and it, you know, it works for me. So I just wondered if you had specifics on that. No, I just measure temperatures and try to go off temperature pressure chart and you can tell. But generally, if it's close to ambient, you know, you got issues. Um, and most of the time, I just have the temperature readings so I can go to the factory and verify, hey, this is what I've done. Because a lot of times they'll want them. I'm under warranty. If you don't give them the temperatures, they're going to be like, oh, you need to get temperatures. So I just kind of like, well, CYA, um, right. like I said, cover your ass. But because uh, if I'm by myself and I know it's got a leak, I just start feeling around and I can pretty much tell by its act. And then I just check, check Amtral. But if I'm doing it by the book, if I'm teaching somebody, I measure all temperatures, make sure that, you know, they see it. Yeah. I like what Reliable just said there, too. Yeah. A good sign of a low charge um, when you have an expansion valve, at least, is a, a hissing evaporator or your metering devices frosting up too. Those yep. are also good uh, indicators. Yeah. Well, what What's your your procedure? You know, like you, what's your basic procedure when you and it's either one of y'all, Pat or Jason, when y'all um get up to a location, you know, box it. You know, it's a reach-in cooler, but it's running at sixty degrees. Walk us through how how your guys are going to normally run that call. You know, how you're going to perform your troubleshooting. So for me, I just go in there. I check the the airflow and the evaporator, check the airflow Thank of you. the condenser. Uh, if there's Thank a site class, I peek it, you know, if there is, um, if I'll check the, if, if there's any frost on the evaporator, I'll check if there is a data, a data plate and I can get an amp, an amp reading to compare it to the data sticker. I'll do that. And if, uh, if everything, if everything else, everything's closed, the gaskets are good. There's no uh, moisture getting in and things like that. If I need to, I will, uh, verify if it's running and if it's not the thermostat's not stuck what kind of programming it's on if it's at the set point um if the probes are in the correct place and then last but not least i'll gauge up if i have to gauge up nice yep. nice first thing i do is like you said check airflow um take your evaporator coil i always open it up look at the fan try to shine a flashlight back in coil so i can see the coil if it's frosted up or not um if i can't see it then i go around the back side you know, on these reach-ins, most of the time that coil is on the ground, and 95% of the time it's got a glove or a piece of wax paper sucked up on it or a baggie or full of dirt. Um, 
So I like to brush that off, and I'll shine a flashlight through there. If I'm not getting light through there, I'm not doing anything else until I can see a flashlight through there. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get my cleaner. I'm going to get a brush. I'm going to get, you know, nitrogen. It just depends on what it is, you know, where it's what's near it. depends on how I attack it. You know, a lot of times you can just, you know, if it's just, say, if it's like a Starbucks, there's no grease in there. You can just use a little bit of water and blow it out, and it's pretty good. Um, right. The kitchen, you're going to have to use some sort of chemical, just whatever you do. Make sure you rinse it out 100%. Um, a lot of guys think that no that EVAP no rinse is good for – says it's good for condensers, but the problem is you still have to rinse it off because the way it's no rinse in an evaporator is that evaporator is pulling the moisture out of the air and it clings to the coil and it runs off, so it's self-rinsing that way. But your condenser coil doesn't pull condensation out of the air, so it's never going to self-rinse. So you can use it to clean a, con- a condensing coil, but you need to make sure you rinse it off, though. And um, once I get air going through there, you know, I give it a little bit of time. I start measuring the temperature, see what's going to do. And if it starts dropping, hey, it was a dirty coil. Uh, like, like, you know, Jason said, check your gaskets. Uh, make sure your door closes properly on its own. Um, most of these reach-ins, you should be able to let go of that door and it should close just to hold stuff closed. You know, whether it be uh, magnets in the gasket or the hinges, or, you know, got the leaves. Cams. Yeah, cams in them. So most time doors should stay closed on its own. Um, if all those things are working and it starts working great, if not, that's when you're going to start checking amp draw and go from there. You know, check your controller set points and all that good stuff. You know, yeah, um, so- Adrian mentioned the uh, the noise, and this normally I only catch that noise in walk-ins, and yeah. it's normally um, for me. I've never heard that noise with regular TXVs. I've only heard them with EEVs, um, really? the 404s. Yeah, I've never like. I guess the audible noise is so much louder for me with the EEVs. I'll I'll put my uh, you know, after I do the normal check, I'll check the computers for like the master builds and normally the super heats up there in the like the eighties and the nineties. And you know, I I make an adjustment and bring it down and it starts to quiet and it meters and and then I compare it to my digital gauges. But uh again, I've ne- I've never heard that audible sound other than with those EEVs. Nice. What would y'all say the most common mistakes like when y'all run by another technician, either from another company or even from y'all's own company, what are the most common mistakes that, that y'all see uh, being made when when technicians work on refrigeration? People just not checking airflow. The the that the you know they're assuming that it's high head pressure when one of the fans are out, or they're running slow or backwards because of a bad capacitor. Um, low pressure and not checking the belts. You know the 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 tension of the belt and the speed and whatnot. Um, not checking for clean coils and 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 all that to say that they're adding or taking away refrigerant instead of checking mm-hmm. those those basic things um, which are more I think especially the condenser and the condenser fans are with this heat they're affected um, by this heat badly and you need to you know maybe get a refresher and, and clean that coil it might have been a few months since the last time it was clean blow mm-hmm. some dust off of it check those fans and stuff like that uh, even check the amp draws of those fans and Maybe the capacitors, they might be out of capacitance and not and not um, charging, getting them going to the speed they need to. And then I found where I found fans running backwards because the, the capacitor's mm-hmm. done, you know, and, and people just assume that they're bad. So. Yeah. Adrian, what was Adrian saying? Uh, dirty coils. And he said not checking high side when you have gauges. Um, yeah, I get it all the time. So a lot of people don't know is that those condenser fan motors are actually supposed to be cooled by the air pull, pulling through there. If you mm-hmm. have a coil, it'll actually kill a condenser fan motor. Yep. 
Yeah, this yeah, it struggles. It pulls the amps, then burns them up. Yeah, so if you if you change a condenser fan motor, check the amperage of the new one and make sure it's not running high amperage because you know if it's not getting proper airflow, change it. You know, I was listening to um, the Advanced Refrigeration podcast and Kevin was talking about cleaning coils. And he said if you walk up to a, a condenser fan motor and it's blowing air out the side around it and not through the coil, he said right there is a dead giveaway that you got packed coil. It may look clean, but you know if it's not blowing air in the right direction. It's dirty. So, I mean, I learned some stuff from those guys. Those guys are very pretty smart. Yeah. I, I tend to notice, too, when you got a, a really bad coil, uh, especially on a walk-in, but it really applies to everything, there's an insane amount of heat that you'll feel radiating off of that condenser because you, you don't have that, that airflow. I mean, I, I walk up not that long ago. Me and, and my trainee walked up to a unit, and I'm like, oh, this coil is packed. And he's like, how you know that? And I told him, I said, come stand back here where I'm at. I'm like, you feel that insane amount of heat? And he's like, yeah. And then he took his flashlight and he was like, oh, crap, this thing, this thing is horrible. It took us, God, I think an hour and a half to clean that condenser. That's how bad it was. Most guys want to jump to conclusions. They want to check charge off the bat. That's the last thing I want to do, man. I will spend an extra 15 minutes being lazy to avoid checking. I mean, I'm checking everything but, you know, the charge. I don't want to do that. I don't want to hook up to that. I don't want to touch it. I want to check everything else first. And, I mean, some guys, that's the first thing. And that's the reason why these small units don't have access ports. It has nothing to do with its R290 is flammable. That has nothing to do with it. It's a critical charge. They don't want some guy going in there and throwing a hose on there very first thing without checking anything else and blowing the charge. Because guess what? If you have a three-ounce system and you throw a four- or five-foot hose on there, you don't have a you don't have three ounces. <coughs> You're done. Yep. I mean, you never you don't know you don't know what you walked into because you, you screwed the charge off the bat. Yeah, I very rarely actually connect my gauges. And by the time I do, I'm usually confirming what I already thought the, the issue was. If, if there's, I know there's a lot of resources out there online and on YouTube that'll explain in depth um, how to not hook up your gauges and still still check the charge. And I think that's something that a lot of people in our industry um, need to learn. I mean, I, I walked in one time, I think I was bringing parts to another technician. He was working on an ice machine it had nothing to do with the refrigeration. I can't remember what he actually changed on it. And he still had his gauges on it. And I'm like, why in the hell are your gauges hooked up right now, bro? Oh, well, so-and-so told me you should always know the pressures. I was like, don't ever again in your life hook up your gauges for a non-refrigeration related mm -hmm. issue. I'm like, I can, the amount of times I've actually had to put my gauges on an ice machine Versus the amount of ice machines I've worked on, I've almost never had to put my, my gauges on it if, if you were to do percentage-wise. Yeah, I tell my guys, it's always assume it's mechanical first. Yeah. Never go mm. popping the system open mechanical. There's probably the charges, if it's been running this whole time just fine, there's probably a solenoid not opening up, the sensor not working, a probe not working. There's, there's normally some sort of moving part or something that's, active that's probably failed so always go through those things first and and those are normally the easy things to change out of you know a, a ice thickness probe a bin switch uh thermistors mm -hmm. um right. you know controller button stick power buttons break it's just it's just go through your sequence of operation and the last thing you want to do is play with the refrigerant i always tell everybody refrigeration is 95 percent everything but refrigerant i mean you know, whatever gas is in there, it's it's generally electrical, other outside factors, you know, ice machines, you add in water and that kind of stuff. It's generally 95% has nothing to do with the charge. It's something else causing all the issues, I believe. Um, Adrian just brought up a good point. There, there has been some instances where um, you got it. 
uh, there's been some instances where um, the AC is not working and, and yeah. in, in certain rooms and or, or these, you know, the condensers on top uh, and it's uh, the heat rises and it's they're all starting to struggle. That's a really good point. Um, sometimes you'll, you'll find a unit in a room and whatnot and, and it won't work right. And it has a lot to do with the AC being down. And I've learned that when I first got in because I'm just take doing everything to this machine and just to find out that, oh, you know, it's, it's hot as hell in here. I'm not noticing that because I'm new and I'm stressed out and trying to trying to figure stuff out. But that's a good point. Most yeah, of that, that, that's a huge point. Um, Especially one thing I'm learning because I'm not I'm not really an HVAC guy, but I'm learning HVAC being here at Whaley. Um, and a lot of times they'll call in, you know, the AC is not working. The kitchen's hot. And it's like, actually, your makeup air is, is not working. It's not the AC. It's you got your ACs are working fine, but your makeup air is not working and your mm. exhaust is basically sucking out all the cold air. And a lot of times you can go to the exhaust and you'll feel straight up cold air uh, coming out of it. So, yeah, a lot of times you have to look not a lot of every time you have to look for possible external issues that don't even have anything to do with the units. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, someone said something the other day about, you know, refrigeration is harder because there's so many outside factors besides the unit itself. I think, you know, last week, I think someone brought that up, you know, a kitchen, it's easier to mainly do kitchen work because it doesn't, it's not affected by outside factors, but, you know, refrigeration, if it's too hot, it's too cold. I mean, everything plays hell on it. So you guys do any open air cases like uh, grab and goes at like gas stations or any other place uses like structural concepts makes a bunch in my area because they're in Michigan. But um, I do not. So those I've worked on a few of them, but I, I don't know. I get I feel like I get lucky with them every time I work on one of them. Yeah, the few times I do, it's normally something like a drain line's clogged or or the uh, a mechanical thermostat. Is, yeah. is stuck or something like that, but I've never had any refrigeration issues per se. Most in, of mine, uh, in the case, most of mine are refrigeration issues, you know, the drains because they run a ton, they're real susceptible to uh ambient conditions. Um, so I was just gonna say, if you work on a lot of open air cases, the first thing a lot of manufacturers want you to do before you even do anything is look and see what's around there in the ceiling, look and see if you have a, a heat duct blown down on there, an AC duct blown down on there. Um, it's pretty key to all these things that. You know, they don't have AC or heat ducts blowing when blasting right in them. Um, it causes a lot of havoc. So I was just going to say, if you work on a lot of those, make sure you check um, air from blowing in there. Yeah, and one of the things I would say I have noticed, and it was probably um, most common in, in this chain that I used to work at when I was in Orlando, um, they did like fresh pasta and stuff, and they had all the vegetables in the open air case. And those vegetables just drop beneath the, the pans and whatnot. And you end up with a ton of vegetable, you know, lettuce and spinach and all that stuff blocking the condenser. So I actually got in the habit where if it is a, a cooling issue, one of the first things I do, if, if there's any kind of produce in there, is lift up the pans and look to see what's underneath there and then, you know, wash it out. And a lot of times that, that's a big issue, just stuff falling down in there. Yep. So Stephen Bress, this is a new name here. I appreciate you joining, Stephen. He said, Gets that a lot with people keeping fridges in the garage in the summer, then no freeze in the winter because most top line units use refrigerator compartment temp control for the compressor and just size the freezer. Stays frozen when the fridge is running normally. But in the winter, the garage temp control below the fridge temp so it turns on and the freezer defrosts. I never thought of it that way, man. Uh, this must be up north. Yeah, must be up north. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it happens in Indiana, I bet. Um, luckily, uh, my uh, 
garage freezer is a commercial grade freezer and doesn't have a, a, a refrigerator section, so I'll be all right. <laughs> That's, good. That's good, Steven. We got Ben Poole in the house. Thanks for joining. Ben Poole's in the oh, house. I just got my tickets. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm looking forward to AHR Expo. That's what uh, Jason's referring to here. So Nice. What else we got? Honeycombs get dirty and don't move enough air. So you're talking about the open air cases. So the open air cases work kind of different. So most of uh, the evaporators are on the bottom. They suck air in. They create an air curtain. So they got a baffle that runs up the back and it has slots cut in it for air to go out to out to the shelves. But then in the front and the top, there's like a little honeycomb black plastic piece jammed in there, and it actually blows the air straight down and it creates an air curtain effect. So it's supposed to roll the air inside the case and kind of acts as a curtain to keep, you know, outside air from coming in. But they get those curtains get blocked up and then like everything else, it just causes havoc. And another thing too with those air curtains. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, because I could be totally wrong. Um, I know for sure this happens with a lot of bar equipment, but I'm, and I believe a couple of air curtain manufacturers have told me this too. You're supposed to put pre-chilled product in there. You're not supposed to load room temp product. Is that correct? Yeah, you want to put pre-chilled in there, and that's pretty much any, for any reach-in. Most manufacturers don't want you to put cold stuff in there. It's not designed. It's designed as a holding cabinet versus right. a chilling cabinet. So, yep. But yeah, like you can get away though with most regions putting room temp stuff in there and it'll get down. But like, I know, you know, going from air curtains, uh, and talking mostly now about bar equipment, um, I'll, I'll have customers that'll sit there and they'll have all their, you know, beers room temp because they don't have anywhere to, to store them. And then they're like, man, this cooler never works. And like, um, you're doing the exact opposite of what's, what it's designed to do. And then you have to, you know, pull up manuals and stuff like that, explaining to them that these are designed to, um, hold product, not to actually chill product. So that, that's another thing I think a lot of people missed um, on a lot of refrigeration, especially the smaller units, is what temperature is the product you're actually putting in there to, to start with. If you've got a customer that's putting room temp product in a barrel or in an air case, that's going to be your first step is to have them start putting pre-chilled stuff in there. Yep. So, you know, Reliable's preaching, you know, we were preaching the other night. You got to make sure you train your customers so they know how to operate their own equipment. Um, most customers, uh-huh. they think you just plug it in, throw stuff in there, and it's good to go. And it doesn't work that way in a lot of cases. There's a lot of variables. And like you were talking about, you know, put a pre-chill product in there. If you throw a hot product in there, it may eventually come down, but it's going to take a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, oh, Adrian. People get away with undercharging walk-ins here until it gets freezing once every five years. <laughs> it's free. That thing's like down on the border pretty much. If it gets freezing down there, it's going to be a rough-ass day. <laughs> but yeah, uh, people are big on, on undercharging walk-ins. I mean, you know, when, you, when you're charging up a walk-in from scratch, aside from just adding charge to it, making sure you got a clear side glass, you still need to check the superheat, make sure where it, where it needs to be, you know? Um, there's a lot to it. You know, a lot of people think, oh, let me just, you know, throw some gas in it. My pressures look good. My sight glass looks good. And let me get out of here. Yeah, that might get you by, but it, it's not going to do the the job right. Yeah, so um, I don't do a whole ton of electronic expansion valves. I've done a couple. And it was pretty cool because you just set your gas, you, you know, your temperature, and it pretty much it does everything itself, you know. But um, mm-hmm. As far as saying superheat, um, freezers are like a four to eight, and coolers are like a six to ten. That's at mm-hmm. outlet of the evaporator. 
Um, yes, that's important. That's where I like to take my superheat is at the evaporator outlet. Yep, evaporator. <laughs> and then I always check it at the compressor too at the condenser unit just to make sure I'm not, you know, you don't know what's going on, but I like to be 100% sure that I don't have any liquid going back to that compressor. So just to mm -hmm. verify it back there, um, you know, if it's a new install, you did all new line sets, you should be closer to 25, 30 once you're back at the compressor and that's perfectly acceptable. Um, there is a maximum allowed superheat back to the compressor you got to look out for because, you know, you are cooling that compressor with that cool gas coming back so you know yeah I'm, sure I'm glad you pointed that out i actually learned that from uh brian was it brian or kalos listening to his podcast i mm -hmm. was i never knew that but yeah i learned that years ago you've got a maximum uh hot what is it, a cool return gas temp i think if you look up the specs on the compressor to tell you like return gas temp or something like that and it's got to be that or lower or you're going to burn up the compressor so what apps are you guys using when you're doing refrigeration repairs um i use, I use it dan foss there's a ton of great apps out there. I mean, I, uh, for my gauges, I use measure quick or fill piece app because I have fill piece probes. Um, I used to use measure quick a lot more and then you start getting trouble for doing screenshots. So I quit. I, I use it when I, I use it sometimes, but I like to take screenshots as I have it for my you know personal record. I'm not giving it to a customer. I just like to have it, you know, if I'm doing notes or if I'm comparing, you know, stuff. And now if you take a screenshot mm -hmm. it like kick you off. So you can't be screenshot. Oh, really? Yeah. What's that about? Why is that Propri proprietary or well, um, well, people were doing it and putting in like uh, logs for like, you know, get their customers. This is how the unit's running show it. And they, they have a feature where it can actually tie into like a work order or something. And I think they, um, they just, they, it's a pay, it's a pay side of it. And uh, they just don't want you to screenshot. Oh, it's about money. And, uh, I'd really see them sell ads. I'd really, sit yeah. through, I'd really sit through an ad and be able to screenshot something and they have to pay for it. Um, yeah. What's the name of this app? Measure Quick. Measure Clerk. Measure Quick. Quick. Measure Quick. Okay. Yeah. It works with all the like the digital gauges and it works with Testo, Philippi. So it works with all of them. And then it's got some pretty cool features on there. And what they've also designed it to help you troubleshoot. So you can input, you know, BTU, CFMs, everything. You can use it for measuring airflow. And it actually helps point you in a direction what to look for. Um, but unfortunately it doesn't really do a really good job of that as far as the refrigeration side. It's more of an AC side. Um, but yeah, I use uh, the Dan Foss app. Uh, the Copeland app is a blessing for Copeland compressors because it, yep. it breaks down everything that compressor is supposed to see as far as amp draw, temperatures, all that kind of stuff. Parts, um, tells you the oil, refrigerant types. I mean, it does. It tells you the applications. Yeah. It does. I, I love the Copeland app. It'll also tell you if a compressor is obsolete and it'll tell you the replacement for it. Yeah, that's a great app. Um, I pulled up my phone real quick just to see what other apps I use. Yeah, the Dan Foss refrigeration tools. I got the Copeland app. I've got the Embraco app. Um, I've got the Tecumseh app. I haven't used that one lately because I don't ha have as much Tecumseh up here as I did when I was down in Florida. And then I also use the Heatcraft app. Heatcraft app is, is pretty great. You can find just about any part that you need, um, as long as you got a heat craft serial number. And I'm opening it up now because I think they have a box load calculator. Yep. Yeah, they got a box load calculator, cross-reference, parts lookup, uh, energy savings calculator, PT chart, everything in there. So that's a really good app, too. Yep. Uh, I'm all about an app to make my job easier. Um, now, <laughs> I, I like the information. That's what that's what I like is the data you can get from that. Yeah, you still got to know how to use the data and understand the data, but it gives you more of a look for it. And like you said, Say if you're checking a, a, a Copeland compressor and 
you know, it's a sealed system and you got low Amtral, you can go to that. Like, oh, the Amtral is supposed to be 4.3 and I'm pulling 2.7. You know, I'm probably undercharged here. That's going to be, you know, just another yeah. tool to use to make, just to confirm your thoughts. Um, but there's a ton of them out there, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what so, about you, Jason? What do you use as far as apps? I, my, I got my Copeland Mobile, my check charge. Uh, I use HVAC schools, not for checking charge, but for my for my team. Uh, there's a lot of good information on there. And then I used the Dan. I, I found I was working on some reach-ins, and the Dan Foss was helping me actually tell me to turn where to, you know, put the information in and tells me to actually turn on the TXV and make some adjustments. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, it's, it's, cool. Been, it's been a little hot minute since I've been in working on all this stuff. So a lot of these apps uh, keep reminding me that they're dormant. <laughs> let's help our boy adrian out here you know a good one guys jobber use my link for discount so if you guys ever yeah. talk to adrian he'll hook you up man yeah when i get my contractor's license i'll, I'll use that link okay <laughs> you ever use the magnetic tool from dan foss either one of y'all yeah that's pretty cool i have it yeah i've seen it that's pretty cool so i used to have the one that was on a keychain like you just hold up to a motor or up to a solenoid and just spin but they got it on the phone it's the same thing you just hold it there you're like oh this is cool yeah, it is. So we got man, this guy's killing it tonight. The graphing function was nice when diagnosing LG refrigerators. They used to get partially restricted condensers due to oil buildup burning out when they'd run the compressors on low speed constantly. If you turn one off and watch the pressures equalize, you could sometimes spot a partial restriction as a point where a high side pressure flatlined while the low side was still climbing and then would continue dropping. The flatline was due to the refrigerant traveling through. The restriction that's good to know man yeah i don't know crap about residential but that seems pretty cool so i actually was on a a, a podcast this morning with tk cousins he um runs a group on facebook and it's it's mainly a, a residential guys man but i got invited in there by a friend of ours um uh what's his name i can't remember his real name he uh does a ton of residential repairs but he's all over tiktok and instagram he invited me in there because someone was talking about switching from residential or trying to you know start doing commercial jobs, and uh, he uh, brought me in there. And it's a pretty cool group, man. Um, you know, I used to think that the residential guys were just like, and I'm not trying to be mean here. I just thought, you know, I'm a commercial guy; they're a residential guy. They must be hacks or whatever. And dude, some of the stuff these guys have to work on, you know, these inverter-driven compressors and these fridges and stuff. I'm like, man, I wouldn't want to deal with this crap. <laughs> I mean, it's coming, but I don't want to deal with it. <laughs> See, that, that's been my thing. And that's, I feel like commercial uh, refrigeration, at least like on the reach-in side, is way more simple than, than the residential side. And I've told people that, and they're like, no way, but this is commercial. I'm like, yeah, but there's literally nothing to this unit. I'm like, I don't even work on my own refrigerator at home. If it goes I, down, I call somebody. People always ask me. Or it's going in the trash. People always ask me. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they ask me, like, what's the difference between residential and, like, commercial i'm like well if i want to work on an oven i can pull one panel off if you want to work on that oven you got to pull off like five panels to get to what i gotta get to i was like no exactly <laughs> what we got here yeah residential appliances are now way more complicated yeah man i've done a little bit here on my house i have a convection fan that went out on my oven and it, it was a nightmare. I'd rather change the convection fan on a rationale than the one on my residential stove. It was that bad. <laughs> Ooh. 
I think the most I've done residential, um, like for myself, is change like an element on an oven or on a, you know, on a dryer and maybe change, you know, a belt or something like that. Aside from that, nope. Calling somebody, they can have it. So Brian brought up a good point here. He said he used his smart temp clamps today to measure temps across the dryer. He thought he had a restriction. Um, that's a good point to make. So um, if you have a restriction in your system and you're trying to find it, the best way, I, like he just said, is to check measure, you know, temperature in and out of like a dryer. Um, I go by a rule of thumb of generally like three to five degrees across a dryer. Temp drop is probably going to get changed because you got a restriction in there. Um, I don't know about you guys, but that's just what I tend to look at. Yeah, see, and that, that's funny because I was going to ask you that because I had a, a situation where another tech, you know, he thought the dryer was restricted and he had an eight degree temperature uh difference across the dryer so i'm like i would say yeah change the dryer but then my supervisor was like no enough eight degrees isn't enough so you're saying three to five degrees i generally do two to five anything under one to two is pretty acceptable anything above three to five is what i would consider to change it i mean that's just me personally yeah i was like eight degrees i'm like that's a pretty significant drop my supervisor was like nope that's not it so i'm like well I mean, you the man, you the boss. So whatever you say goes. But let me ask Do you. Do you recall this. what happened? Uh, I don't know because they ended up sending another tech to go finish the job, and that other tech didn't really run it by me to tell me what he ended up finding. I was all for changing the dryer, though. That, no, no, I'm lying. Now that I think about it, the tech that went back there said that the that the condenser was dirty was the issue. But I'm like, I know when I was going through it with the technician that was there first he put a flashlight through the condenser and everything and he's pretty thorough and if he skips any steps by the time he calls me we make sure we go through everything but as far as i know that's where it ended i don't know if that actually re- resolved it or, or what though i hate that man you get involved in something and someone else goes and finishes it and you never heard you never hear back i'm bad i will literally go and like search that call out and then i'll read the other person's notes and if their notes aren't up to par i'll be like i'll call them like hey you're finishing my job. Do a better job with the notes. I want to know what was going on with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've done that. And I'm like, hey, do you mind walking through the reasoning? And they're like, no. I'm like, okay. Yeah, I try to do my notes <laughs> in a way that you know. understand my reasoning and everything. If yeah. you read my notes, you rarely have to call me to find out exactly. what you think. That's how it should be, man. Which should we're going to do an episode on that, I'm sure. I'm looking <laughs> forward to that. We need to. Um, I don't want to beat some guys up over notes. So, Which one of y'all wants to explain? Because this is another thing I run into. Um I'll constantly ask technicians, what is the point of pressures? And most technicians look at me confused as like if I grew another head out the side of my neck or something. What is the point of pressures? Which one of y'all wants to break that down? Pat, you want to go on that? So the point of pressures gives you an idea what's going in there. You got to be able to take that pressure and convert it to temperature. I mean, the pressure is just – if you can't – you can't measure – temperature inside that pipe so you take the pressure and you can convert it to a known number and that will give you temperature say saturation temperature of your coil or whatnot is how i interpret it now i'm sure you got a totally different reason but you're going to give it to us i'm sure so no no that, that's exactly it you you don't know the temperature inside that evaporator or that condenser unless you know the pressure and then you can convert that that pressure to a temperature but you know Aside from that, pressures are, are irrelevant. The guys will call me and be like, yeah, I have this pressure and that pressure. I'm like, okay, now tell me what temperatures those are. Yep. Oh, what do you mean? And then I got to break it down to them. We need to know what the temperatures are in the evaporator and in the condenser and then con- you know compare them to the 
box temp and then compare them to the ambient temperature around the condenser to get an idea of what's going on. Just saying I've got yeah, 25 and 250, that don't mean crap. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, it sounds weird, but I don't, for the most part, memorize what pressures are quote unquote supposed to be because there's too many factors involved when you just say, hey, I got this and this. Okay, well, what's your box temp? Is your box temp 30 or is it 65? You know what I mean? Are you running an expansion valve? What's your ambient temp? Is your ambient temp 75? Is it 105? Because like I was just explaining to a guy, I think yesterday or maybe earlier today, your pressure, you can be undercharged in an expansion valve system, but quote unquote, look like you have a good charge because your pressures are quote unquote reading right. But it's because you've got a hot box and you're doing a hot pull down. So your expansion valve is wide open, which means your pressures are going to be running, you know, high, but, but they're running normal. And it, it might sound confusing the way I'm trying to explain it, but if your expansion valve is wide open, your pressures are going to be higher. So if you're doing a hot pull down, say on a walk-in, um, if you're if you're charged properly, your pressures are going to be looking like they're they're through the roof until the box gets closer to the temperature and then the expansion valve starts, um, you know, regulating the way it's supposed to. So yeah, I always um, try to tell people, don't worry about the pressure per se. What is that? You know, what does that pressure correlate to on temperature? And then what is the box temp and what is the ambient temp around the the condenser? So yeah, I mean that that's exactly it. It's it's what temperatures um, are running. Now, uh, on evaporators, uh, what do you look for as a rule of thumb, evaporator temp versus, let's just say, target box temp? What should the difference be? Uh, I look for around 10 to 15. just depends on the refrigerant type and what the environment is. I don't like and, I don't have to be 10 degrees below set point of the box. Yep, exactly. 10 to 15 is what I look for. What do you do on, on condensers, on condensing temperature versus ambient? Well, I mean, it's a little different now with the new coils, but I try to run um, uh, if the coils clean, everything. I try to get you know twenty to twenty five generally in the newer style coils. The older ones you could go closer to thirty, but right now I try to run twenty to twenty five degrees. All right, cool. Yeah, that I was because that that's a debate I got into because I was used to generally thirty as a rule of thumb. And for me, I think, because I am learning, I have to kind of look at things a little bit different being in a cooler climate. Mm -hmm. Florida was so dang hot all the time. And I'm sure, you know, Jason could probably attest to this. You got to kind of shoot for higher head pressures just to make sure you got a um, enough of a gap to to reject the heat at the condenser. But yeah, I try to, anywhere between 20 and 30 is, is what I'm aiming for on a condenser. Yep. So what else we got in here? Do, 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 do. So, Brad. 10 degree temperature drop SST versus box temp. Yep. <laughs> what else we got in here? How long's Brett been in here? He just joined a couple minutes ago. Oh, okay. He must have got his crocs changed and jumped on. He just joined and he's coming with the answers. That's what I'm talking about. This dude, man. Oh, Brett will have him. Brett is like one of the smartest guys I've ever met in my entire life. He won't claim it, he won't admit it, but. The dude is a freaking genius, man. If he can't find it, he knows where to find it pretty damn fast. So um, he saved my ass quite a few times. So Quentin Webb, he says uh, exactly. He had to compressor change up the other day, 94 degree box, pull down. So yeah, higher pressure until you get down to the 30 and below. Yep. yep. Um, when it's pulling down hot, man, that TXV is wide open. It's just pumping gas through there. 
Oh, Brett says it just Brett got just home. Got home. <laughs> Building some crazy training modules and stuff, man. He's a uh, he's he's killing it down there. Nice. So, Stephen, Brett's again for residential fridges. Pressures help for figuring out what your failure is. High side leak versus low side leak. Inefficient compressor. Occasionally restrictions, but you never want to check pressures first. Nope, it's the same thing in commercial. Pressures are the last thing you want to check. You gotta give that system every single opportunity you can before you. You know, condemn a you know charge or something along those lines. Yeah, and just another random point I want to throw out there too. Uh, when you clean a condenser, fire the unit back up. You need that condenser time to dry before you analyze what the pressures are. Your pressure will look low when you have a a wet condenser. So I usually give, depending on the ambient temperature and all that good stuff, a good twenty minutes or so of the, of the unit running dry off that answer completely before i'm judging what my pressures will look like i've but, guys you know clean the condenser and then, oh it's low add charge and then before you know it they're four pounds overcharged because they didn't they didn't wait for the condenser to dry it'll dry <laughs> pretty fast here in florida it's just hot yeah and you'll see you'll see it <laughs> evaporate very quickly i've seen someone turn on a micro channel coil that's wet and it won't flow air well, so if you, if you smack it lightly you'll you'll pull the water out of it and yeah. just yeah, on your hand on it. You want to tap it or something to break that. <laughs> yeah, tap That's, it and it'll start popping yeah. out. So much surface area, man. It'll actually trip by head pressure. You know, if you turn yeah, it off. I've had that happen. It, it, I, I don't know if I've ever seen that. Dude, the first time I seen it, it, I freaked out, dude. I was like, I just cleaned this thing. <laughs> water on the backside, no air coming through, man. It's just holding water. Some restaurants, the water that's going up to the roof, uh, you'll notice in some burger places, in particular McDowell's. Uh, that they have <laughs> by the uh, by the water heater, you'll see an old an old school looks like a shower head, like a, a faucet you can pop out and turn left or right. That's actually going up to the roof, and a lot of times it's set to hot water, like it's blazing hot water from the from mm -hmm. the the heater hitting. You know, you're using to clean the coils, cuts the grease real nice, man. But it, it does add to the heat when you're when you're when you're kicking it back on. So you can change that to cold. Almost yeah, there. if it works, if it works, sometimes um, if you and I have I've been showing photos to my PM team. I'm like, if you go on the roof and you turn the, the, the spigot on on the wall and it's not go downstairs, check by the the, the washing machine and the, the dryer and you'll see a spigot by the the mom, the mop sink. Pop it open just yeah. like an old school shower. Turn it one way. Go up there and check. Turn it the other way. Go in there. And check. You'll see that it'll um, one way might. Kill it all the way, and it's only on one side. Or you can go hot to cold. It's, it runs the same way. And it's in the old. It's in the older. Keep that in mind, buildings. I love I'll shoot you some some figures. pictures I mean, that they're, I, I. They're have. a lifesaver. Yeah, but I've seen them. Yeah, where it's like steaming hot water, and I'm like, I mean, I'm gonna use it because I need yeah. to get this condenser clean. But then it's like now you gotta wait before you even fire the thing. Yeah, it'd up. be nicer to have cooler water, especially when you already mm -hmm. had head pressure tripping and it's hot outside. Yeah. Nice. Okay, so Brett's got a couple of good points here. He says, what I suggest is that people should start doing is taking measurements on equipment that's working perfectly so they have a reference point of what it should be doing. That's a great point. That way when you come up, you know, you already know what it should be. And then you reply back, check your subcooling, your temperature drop, check your superheat on the discharge line, superheat on the suction line, get accustomed to how it's been running. Yeah, great points, Brett. Um, especially on PMs, um, I don't like to, you know, I'll measure all the temperatures and everything, get it a baseline. But yeah, all good points. You know what? I, you know, to his point about checking it when it's good, 
and recording that information. That's great. Mm -hmm. I've learned over the years, if I've, you know, an opportunity, if you have identical equipment. So I've worked on ice machines where there's a huge bin in a restaurant and there's two Manitowocs or two ice machines there. And one's acting up. I would always turn them both on, turn them back on at the same time and watch them both. Mm -hmm. Watch the one that's working fine and time them out and look at the sequence of operations. And that's just a just a tip. If you have an, an identical model, you know, you could always compare a, a good working one versus the one that's acting up. If you have multiple, especially in franchise restaurants, they have multiple of every model for for everything they're doing there. But yeah, checking um, recording um, measurements when it's new, that's that's awesome. That's helpful. Yeah, my, probably write it on the I've inside. Done that a lot, especially if I think of if I think the part is bad and I got the same machine right next to it. My reading across the part I think is bad, and then go to the machine that's working fine and compare the the readings to it. Yeah, that is a, yeah. that's a great point. And yeah. if you have multiple ice machines and and they're both acting up, all of a sudden check what they have in common. Whether it's power, whether it's water source, you got backed up water filters. It's like why would they both be down? Um, it's probably more relevant to restaurants because a lot of equipment runs off a of reverse osmosis, the, um, the frappe machine, the uh, steamers, the coffee machines. Some of them use the same source of whether it's energy or water. And, and if they start all acting up, look for that, that common denominator. So Dave Johnson, all brings a good See, point. To that point. Go ahead. To that point, uh, Jason, sorry, Pat. Um, it's reminded me of a, of a it's rare that, Two of the same thing go bad, right? That that's very yeah. rare. Um, so I always check what they have in common. And in the uh, situation, it reminds me of years ago. Um, I was running service calls, and then my my boss had called me, and he's like, "Hey, I need you to go to this place." And um, they said that both of the fans on their on their walk-in cooler are down on the evaporator. And I'm like, "Both fans?" He's like, "Yeah." I'm, I'm like, "They sure that both fans are bad?" Well, another company went out. And said both fans were bad. And what ended up happening was that company said they had to order both of the fans. They were going to come back, but almost a week went by. They hadn't come back. Um, they hadn't heard from them. I guess they had been calling them that day, you know, to find out where they were coming. And when they couldn't get a hold of them, they called us. And I'm like, I mean, I'll, I'll make sure I grab two fans from the supply house. They're pretty standard. But, you know, of course, I'm going to troubleshoot it myself. Uh, long story short, they ended up having a bad neutral line on the power going to, to the two fans. Cause I was like, there's, there's no mm -hmm. way. I mean, it can be that both fans are bad, but what's the chances. Now, what was funny is as I'm repairing, uh, you know, replacing the neutral line, that company walks in with two techs and two fans and they're like, yeah, you got it running already. I'm like, yeah, it was a bad neutral line, but yeah, that's a good point. Always check for the common denominator. Cause it's rare unless it's like some places where they'll let, you know, two fans out of three go bad before they call in the service. Call. <laughs> that it's rare. A lot. That yeah, but it's rare that two of the same things are going to start having trouble at the same time, and yeah. it's not going to be something that they have that they have in common, like a power supplier, water supplier, or whatever. Yep. So Dave Johnson, all about point. He said, uh, "Commissioning base commissioning info for a baseline data point." So if you install a new, say if you're doing a walk-in, you get a new evaporator conditioning unit, you're going to measure amperage. You're going to know what charge you put in there. You know, on the inside on the inside cover, write all the information down there, right? Compressor, Amtral, uh, your condenser fan motor, Amtral, your charge, that kind of stuff. Put all the information in there. So, you know, you may not be the next guy to come back, but guess what? If you are the next guy to come back three years down the road, you're not going to remember the Amtral. But if you got yeah. it written on the inside panel, hey, that compressor is pulling high amps. That compressor is pulling low amps. You know, that fan motor 
it's 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 stopping pretty fast when it shuts off, you know, and it's pulling high ants and maybe has a bad bearing going out. So all that information just helps you, you know, diagnose a little easier and a little better. So well, we all use GE and I put when I commission anything, I, I take that commissioning paperwork, that warranty paperwork, and I put it in the file room. And you could always go back to the history of that piece of equipment. I mean, I wish everyone did that, but that's that's a processy thing. But you should always that's save a good that point. I need to start doing that. Oh, the file room. You yeah, you could put pictures, videos, and files. And I, I like putting manuals that I can't get off of like Partstown. And that if I had to call a manual, uh, the tech support, and they send me a manual, and I know I went through all the trouble to find it, it goes in the file room for myself or for the next guy. Mm. Yeah, nice. So when I do a startup, I attach it to the file room for that piece of equipment too in Global Edge because there's a file room you can attach just for that equipment and there's a file room for the call. So I mm-hmm. try to tie it to that piece of equipment so it's there in the future. Oh, no. Yeah, I try to attach everything to the equipment. What just happened? Uh, time to change webcams, I guess. It didn't like that. It died. <laughs> uh, we can hear you, though. I say, well, this is awkward. <laughs> well, there's your sign. Stage left. <laughs> well, it's the... Uh, Chupacabra and Jason Cho. <laughs> we did that on purpose, y'all. We kicked Pat out of here. Yeah, I'm taking over. The, the inmates are running the asylum now. Uh, so what else you got for us, Jason? Talk about refrigeration PMs. Since you're, since you're the plant maintenance manager, talk about refrigeration PMs. You know, the, the best practices and also the, the common missteps that you see in them. Well, for, for the most part, I mean, you know, I like, I like PMs because it teaches people the, you know, the sequence of operations is, and if, and if you know a piece of equipment is already working fine, you should always take readings before you start doing anything. In my opinion, even with the, with the coil dirty, the belt, the way it is, I check amp draws. I check, I check everything the way it is. Then I clean it. I check my amps. I check the condition of the the contactors, the capacitors, um, you know, the fans and everything. And then I clean everything. I change the filters. I change the belts. I clear those drain lines. And then I check everything again and I compare it, you know, and you can, you know, if anything, you're making it better, but you can at least show the customer and have for history and, and data related that, you know, this is what the unit has gone through since the last time we're here. Not everyone, everyone's on a quarterly um, schedule. Some people are on biannual, you know, like two, twice a year. And, um, you know, you, you just, uh, you don't want to go quick to not capturing that information because you're not going to know what's really wrong with the unit. You know, you're there mm-hmm. to uh, better inform the customer and catch things before they happen. But if you just go to cleaning them and cleaning and just changing everything out, you're not going to really understand, you know, what the unit is doing. So pitfalls, you know, just take your time and understand what's going on and, and just be careful. Nice. Sweet. So I like this comment. Digital tip controls versus mechanical for reach ins, pros and cons. I prefer digital. I uh, prefer digital if I yeah. can. I, I have no no cons to digital. I mean, it's funny because uh if you if you look me up in the, the restaurant equipment tech group, whatever it's called for restaurant equipment, whatever. Uh, I had a lot of pictures a few years ago of literally taking out mechanical control, even on reach-in boxes and prep coolers and replacing them with Dixel digital controls. I actually got called a hack for doing that, but um, which I thought was funny as hell. But um, 
I don't see any cons to digital controls. I feel like they're more reliable. They last longer. You can program an exact temperature you want it to run at. So it can be off at 35, on at 39. You can put in as many um, air defrost or if it's you know, a freezer, as many uh, you know, electrical defrost as you want. I don't see any cons to them. And uh, especially my favorite digital control, um, I guess all around um, that works on reach-ins and, and on some walk-in applications are the Dixel XR controls. Now I know there's, you know, I guess KE2s and other stuff that are also good, but as an overall workhorse control, I, I love the the Dixel XR controls. I'm a KE2. I'm a KE2. Uh, if you got an opening, you can put that Dixel XR control in. That's good, but most time on, you know, some of these reach-ins, they don't have an opening. You put that in. You have to cut an opening. And... Yeah. Like so just what, what's cool is Dixel has. Dixel actually has a mounting box. Um, really? I know that before they sold to, to Emerson, it, the part number was CBOX for control box. And that's how I used to mount them on a lot of the, these old uh, units. It's got a cutout on it. It's a good size box where you could run wiring in and out of it. And I mean, th that's a, I, I've installed an insane amount of them. And I, we used to charge the company I worked for. It was like double the price of a mechanical control. But every time I went to a customer said, look, I'm probably going to be back in a year and a half changing this mechanical. You're probably not going to see me for a while with this digital. They were like, do it. <laughs> we don't want to see you again unless we have yeah, it. Yeah, it pays for itself in service. Oh, yeah. Or lack, lack of, you know, the need for service. Exactly. So I had a brand, well, it wasn't a new box. I installed a new evaporator condenser, new new lines, everything. Hard piped it. And the ceiling insulated. I mean, I spent like a couple of days doing this job. It was school and they wanted it done this way. So I did it. It looked great. It was a fun job. But this thing, in like a year and a half, it ate like three pin controls, dude, just the mechanical. And finally, I was like, look, I'm sick of doing this, guys. I said, we're going to spend a little extra money. I'm going to get you a KE2. We stuck it in there. You can see it in the back. You Nice, bright display. You can open the door. You can see temperature. You can tell it's running. And never had another problem. It's been like four years. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. I don't know why that thing was eating those pin controls, but it just ate them up, man. Yeah, those... Uh, there's a uh, bread soup place that everyone goes to here in Florida, and their walk-in cooler. They kept putting in those, uh, those, those. You put the butter knife in the the, the ping and Johnson control, and uh, I don't know if they're just screwing those suckers to the wall too tightly that it warps, but they, you can't dial in the differential on those things. It's mm -hmm. just too much of a swing. And they kept getting changed out. So I eventually, before I found K2, I, I would, I put one of the, it looks similar. It's a Ranko, if I'm saying that mm -hmm. correctly. Yep. And I put that in there four years ago and no one's been back in there since, at least not for control related issues. Yeah. And, uh, and it's like, ever since then, I was, I just, I'll, you know, and those are 50 bucks still at now, you know, they're cheap, you know, they don't have the air defrost in the ones that I, that I was putting in, but uh, you know, that I was, I was sold from there on out to yeah. just go to digital for the cost of not having to come back all the time and, and the service. I mean, one of those things, 250, that's, that's a service call before you find anything with the hour yeah, exactly. minimum and the travel and the trip and the, and the gas, the fuel and everything and the miscellaneous it's just put that in there. And it's several trips that you, you're going to save. You're going to save thousands of dollars. Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. The thing is, cause if you keep going back, you, you're the one that looks bad, even though it's a joke. Exactly. It's not the controller they're looking at. They're looking at you. They're looking at Caspers. They're looking at Whaley's. They're looking at General Parts. It's not. It's not paying controls or Johnson controls or whoever makes that. It's you. So you have the bad look in their eye. You know, it may cost a little more that first time, but it's going to cost you 
less in the long run of you know, eating callbacks and everything else because the customer to buy it up front. Yeah, which, which I think is an important thing that technicians need to keep in their mind. You know, a lot of times you, you've got, you know, you've got guys like us, obviously, that want to give the, the best to the customer. But then you've got guys, especially um, if, if they're on their own, that, well, let me put in this, this cheaper thing so I can get more calls um, because I know it's going to fail at some point. You just look like a piece of crap to your customer when you have to keep coming out every six months to a year, you know, to replace the defective control. So one thing I think techs need to constantly focus on is what's going to save the customer the, the most money in the long run. And what I like to do is, um, you know, I give the customer the option. I'm like, hey, look, this will save you 200 bucks right now. But in the long run, you're going to replace this thing four times before we ever replace this one that, you know, is a couple hundred dollars more now. But yeah, always approach every call with what's going to save the customer the most in the long run and present that to them. You know, the customer would rather pay two fifty for a temp control than five to ten thousand dollars in wasted food. Yeah, exactly. And, and not just uh, you know someone trying to make more money off the customer. It's I've actually heard just as you know fifty percent to that is it's just easier to put it in because it's two wires. Yeah, you have to read the schematic and you know run additional wire. Make sure you 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 run. You have to control the uh, the solenoid and run power over. But it's just read it. It may be caught. It may, instead of taking ten minutes to put in that that uh, mechanical one, just spend thirty minutes, forty five minutes, and just put it in there. Put it in there real nice. Have, you know, run some extra J cord, and you can make it look really nice, and yeah. you're good yeah. to go. And then the more you do it, the faster it gets. And before you know it, exactly. you're putting in that that digital one in ten minutes anyway. Yeah, you're like, I know I need this, 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 and this. I need this much wire. They go here, here, and here, and I'm good to go. Yeah, yeah, either a piece of J cord or some seal tie and some wire. I mean, there's tons of different ways to do it, dude. If you know you're doing it, you can make up the one end ahead of time. You can have it landed in the control. All you gotta do is mount the control and then run your wire into your you know your box and tie it in there and you're good to go. I mean, it, it's not hard to do. I mean, the first couple, you know, you may be like, oh, what do I gotta do? But really all you need is a neutral or a you guys ever prep your stuff like that? Oh, uh, I try to. Oh man, the 100 series Henny Penny I, high I limits. Used I used to take them out of the box and build them and add the two wires and put them back in the box. <laughs> I used to do that. When I used to do a lot of the, the mechanical controls, taking them out of like the prep coolers and stuff and putting in the Dixel. I did so many of them. I knew exactly how many wires I needed and where they needed to go. And that's exactly what I would do. I have the box drilled out already. I have wire coming out of it. And then all I had to do was get there put some, you know, butt connectors on the wires and then and then go. Before you knew it, it wasn't taking me much longer than it would take to replace the mechanical with another mechanical. So thanks, Quentin. Uh, Quentin says, not kissing ass or anything, but this is coming as favorite podcast live. Something to look forward to near the end of the week. We appreciate it, man. Uh, cool, man. Thank you. Yeah, For we sure. want some time to talk about, you know, being a small business owner and some of the adversities and stuff you got, you know, dealing with bigger companies like us. Um I support everybody, man. There's a place in the market for small, big individuals, whatever, man. There's always going to be a need for guys in this industry. So. Oh, yeah. It's not going away anytime soon. Man, you know, Pat, when you said about, you know, the embarrassment of coming back several times, it's, you know, there, there's a whole other thing to that. You know, what, what about when you're, when you are legitimately having trouble with a call and, you know, 
you, you're stumped, you know, and you're asking for help and you're just you're not really getting it, but you keep getting sent back. Does that make you feel any kind of way? It's just like, could you please send somebody else and get another set of eyes or send someone with me so that I don't have to continue? I mean, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll say, you know, sometimes you get stumped, you know, we're not all, no one's perfect and you get caught up on stuff. And I mean, I've just remembered in the past where it's just like, man, I've been sent back on this three times. I really need help. Send a supervisor, send a friend, phone a friend, or send someone else. Uh, yeah, I'm generally that guys to go out. There's no one coming to save me, it seems like. Yeah, especially, I guess, if you're in a smaller branch. It's like, yeah, you're yeah. All... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Unfortunately for me, there's only a handful of guys at my branch that can rescue me. And honestly, it's probably two guys. And yeah. one, me and him are basically on the same level. Um, me and him will run stuff by each other whenever either one of us are stuck. And then we got one guy that, I mean, he's really good on hot side. So if I get on a jam, especially like on a rationale or something, uh, I can call him and he's like, yeah, you know, look at this, look at that, look at the other. And he's good to go. But yeah, I've been there. Like I've literally sent my supervisor emails like, bro, this is my fifth time. I don't understand how this thing works. Please send somebody <laughs> else. And then I went the next day and that calls back on my schedule. Yeah. Like this customer's and not feeling this. Steven has a- Forget that. I'm not feeling it anymore. <laughs> Steven's got a good point. He says, have you seen any issues with digital controls failing due to poor power supply? Brownout, surges, or electric noise coming back at the neutral? Um, he sees a fair bit of that, especially with houses with bad generator solar installs. Um, no, we re- I really don't see that. I mean, occasionally you may get one on a, if someone's not paying attention and it gets on like an older place, it may have a high leg. Um, it may not like that. So that's about the worst power issue I get on controllers is having them to a high leg. Yeah, I've smoked some stuff out in the past. But that was always on me. Yeah. <laughs> but not, yeah, I've never come up on one that's failed that was running, you know, and then it failed on its own because of something like that. I haven't come across that. Man, that's a whole other episode right there. Run this shit. I better watch out saying that name. <laughs> but mechanical TXT versus E pros and cons. Um, I don't have a whole ton of experience on the electronic man. Most of mine's all mechanical. Um, I've installed a few, and I think they're pretty cool. Um, just like anything else, though, those controllers can be susceptible to brownouts, power surges. Um, they can lose, you know, what type of refrigerants in there. Or if you get a customer, you know, you say if you're at a local burger place and there's a lot of teenagers in there, they get button happy. And they know how to work a phone and find Google and they can find passwords, anything. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, your control thinks it's, you know, a 448, 449 system versus a 404 system. So um, that's about the worst I've seen with that. But I can't really speak enough to, to say 100%, you know, pros and cons of each. Yeah, with the with the EEVs, um, again, I didn't really mess with a lot of them until I got up here with Whaley because uh, we got quite a few accounts of that. That's all they got. At first, I was like, man, you know, this crap sucks, but it was mostly me not understanding them. The more I get to understand EEVs, I don't really see any cons to them. Um, I would say maybe on the customer's end is, you know, most people aren't stocking, you know, the the heads that go on them or anything like that as, as truck stock, um, where, you know, it, it seems to be more common that you have power heads for uh, regular TXVs on your truck, but even then, I I don't even see them fail a whole. So I, I, right now, I don't see any cons. I mean, that's you know two years of working with them. I can't think of any cons off the off the top of my head. My experience with EEVs, the older ones that look like um, they look like dryers. I'm not going to say the brand because they've gotten better since then. But they those the the spindle 
gets undone and you can't get it to reconnect. And those, we ended up chucking them out. Then they switched those egg shaped ones to the brass teacup looking bell one. Those are better. And now they have the, the little Dan Foss Jones and those are pretty, those are really good. You can't even, you can barely hear them stepping at all. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that the biggest issue I've noticed with EEVs is, is technicians who are used to TXVs. They're quick to try to charge things by the sight glass. And if you do that with an EEV system, you're going to overcharge it every time. You don't use the sight glass with an EEV system. You have to charge it in with your superheat and subcool every time. But when you see the notes and they say, I filled the sight glass, and I'm like, isn't that an electronic? What did you do? And then I'm like, all right, well, let's go pull everything out of there and let's, let's do this. But it's... If you're used to working with TXVs, and you know they shouldn't even do that from the get, you know, oh, I'm going to charge in the sight glass. It's not a small reaching; it's a walking. You know, there's 10 to 17 pounds in this thing. You don't just go straight to just charging by the sight glass with a with an EEV. It's it's you're going to mess it up every time. Sweet. Well, I think I'm going to end it here, guys. It's been an hour and a half, and we go. Oh, is it? Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, it was a little slow at first. We kind of just took off there. So I appreciate the audience for stepping in. Some good questions. Some good yeah, comments. Steven, um, welcome, man. Yeah, he's yeah that, that was input. a lot of great info. Looking forward to the next show with you, man. That was great input. Thank you. Yeah, he's uh, everybody. He, he runs a couple of uh, residential sites, uh, groups on Facebook. So I'll add you guys cool. to it. We can get active in there. They have a lot of questions. A lot of those guys want to you know, branch over to the commercial side, and I'll help you out any way I can. So, but Excellent. Yeah, yeah, me too, for sure. I appreciate everybody joining in tonight and uh, have a good night, guys. Y'all take it easy. El Chupo, don't go nowhere. <laughs> if you guys would, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It really helps us grow and helps us know which direction to move in. Also, if you have any suggestions for guests, please email me at commercialkitchenchronicles at gmail.com. Or if you want to be a guest, email me. Love to have you guys on. Thanks a lot. See you next week.